if you go to bed early, that's one thing that you've done right. You're resting. If you've drank enough water, it's just all those little things that that we need to survive. I think we always forget about them. They're always the last thing that we think about because we're always chasing and chasing and chasing whatever deadline we have. But you're never going to reach that deadline if you don't do the basics right. Hello there and happy Christmas to every single one of you listening to this today. It's the Irishman Abroad with me, Jarlath Regan, and what an episode we have for you today with the Irish Paralympic legend, Ellen Keane, who is, of course, a gold medal winner at Tokyo 2020 and a bronze at Rio de Janeiro. It is just taken a while to get this one in place. I was probably chasing down the wrong rabbit holes to try and get in touch with Ellen and then just sent her a DM. And here we are today recording this conversation again, which nearly didn't happen in all the rush of Christmas. I realise what a crazy time it's been for all of you. And I want to take a moment to say thanks to all of our listeners for supporting the show over on Patreon. I know not everyone can afford to do that. For those of you that can, please do. Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Ellen is more than an athlete. She is an ambassador for uh, people with disabilities, Irish sport, perseverance and difference. I have loved listening to her TED talk. I think if you want to go and find that, it's called My Lucky Finn. And I kind of seek out Ellen Keane interviews because she is just such an incredible communicator and, of course, athlete. Her uh, discussions with Jer Gilroy and people that I've listened to are talked to about elite sport and reaching your plateau of your capability and pushing through mentally to find more on the other side is almost as inspiring as her own mental journey of coming through a very low period where she hid her disability and hid the fact that she doesn't have a full arm uh, from the people around her and then finding this new path at the age of 19 when she went to university. That's all in this conversation here. And there's also a big chunk of it devoted to Dancing with the Stars because Ellen is going to be contestant on the fifth series of Dancing with the Stars in 2022 on RTE. As I say at the start, I'm putting all of my money on her, literally every penny. You'll understand why in a few minutes. But if you'd like to hear the full conversation with Ellen Keane, the extra 30 minutes that we give our supporters, just sign up. Really easy, couple of clicks over at patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. So this is the first half of my conversation with Ellen Keane. That's the small talk. Now let's go down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never had- 
has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Johnny Rigo! Ellen Keane, thank you so much for doing Irishman Abroad. I know that you are about to launch into the training for Dancing with the Stars, or are you in the training as it is? Um, I actually already began. So we started, we've got like three weeks of training under our belts now, and then we have two weeks off, and then we go back training again on the third. My first thought was, I'm going to Paddy Power tomorrow and putting every penny I have on you to win this. <laughs> oh my God, no pressure. <laughs> well, for a bunch of reasons, right? And the more I researched for our conversation, the more I thought, oh, this is over. Like this is, I mean, I really think it, this is my tip of the Christmas. Put your money on Ellen Keane to win Dancing with the Stars. First of all, the hip hop dancing background that nobody knows about. The fact that you danced competitively at hip hop. I just can't wait for the week that the worm appears <laughs> in your dance We're already routine. planning it. We're already planning it. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm, all, I'm already there. And then the other thing is just elite sport, just the mindset and the switch that you can flip to go from Ellen Keane out doing her shopping to I am absolutely zeroed in like a laser to win this thing that it's what is like me out doing my shopping is Ellen Keane lasered in to get <laughs> <laughs> whatever she needs to get because she left it so last minute so like the pressure's on and I need to get it done <laughs> yeah don't get in her way in TK Maxx she yeah. will go through you but like it is a it is a joke I'm joking around here but you know, the same when Rob Heffernan was on. Anytime there's, you know, someone who's reached the peak of their sport, who knows what it is to medal at an international games and also to kind of max out your capacity and then go up another level, it puts you at a at an advantage to the Neil Delamares of this world, who, you know, all credit to Neil, an amazing joke writer, a brilliant stand-up comedian but it is just a different world is it not just to what you're what is your normal yeah it is but at the same time I think everyone who's on the show has their own strengths that will play to them when it comes to actually performing live so for me like I can hide behind my hat my goggles and once I'm in the water like I can't see the crowd and when I walk out as well before I race I have headphones in so I'm I do everything that I possibly can to avoid being distracted by the crowd. But when the live show comes around, like I won't be able to avoid the crowd. They're going to be there. The audience is going to be sitting right in front of me as I'm dancing. So I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of that. I'm not, I'm not trying to think about it too much, but I got kind of like my first taste of it a few weeks ago in training because we, we were just like, Oh, we'll do a dance. Cause I'm in a bubble with, um, a few others and my dance partner was like oh we'll just we'll just dance in front of them and see if they like see how you feel <laughs> and I was like yeah, yeah so like I was like ready to go I was so excited and then as soon as it was time to like dance my whole body started shaking and I was like why I can't like what this has never happened before and I couldn't stop shaking and my dance partner was like just breathe and I 
It's like, I don't know how to breathe anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So I really hope that doesn't happen again. Now, I've danced a few times since in front of other people. And like, it hasn't happened since. But I don't know. The first live show, I'm a little bit concerned that that might happen. But thankfully, you don't get voted out on the first show. So I don't know. The bookies, my odds on the bookies might might absolutely plummet after (laughs) because I might might be off in the first show but um the person i actually like when i saw the list of celebrities the person i was like oh my god was eric cody because i'm like she's she's a musician she's gonna know music is in her and i saw her dance and i was like oh no (laughs) Mm. yeah no she's definitely the other hot favorite for me because like you say it's it's in her bones it's in her blood like this is her normal in so many ways is you know getting in touch with with rhythm and but, like, hip-hop has nothing to do with ballroom like hip-hop, yeah i and like as i said like i i went into the rehearsals being real confident like overly cocky being like i'm an athlete like i'll be fine oh my god it is so hard the amount of concentration it takes mm. to even remember the steps so you remember the steps and then all of a sudden you have to do it to the music which is like 10 times the speed that you actually learned it at. And then you're tripping over your feet. And then my automatic, because like in in training for like sports, you're always conscious of not getting injured. So like you have to always have like a bent knee or your knees out just to protect your knees. And that's, you don't do that in dancing. Absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. always legs closed, straight legs, or at times like bent knee and really bent knee. So it's nearly like my body's conditioned to do a certain thing really, really well. And now I'm trying to learn how to do something else really, really well. So it's it is a very big learning process. You, you came on to talk down your odds and to talk me out of doing this bet. But uh, <laughs> the more the more I think about it, I, I hear what you're saying, right, that your your performance as it stands is about blocking out the crowd, is about head down, focus on what it is you you have to do. And with performance and dancing or telling jokes on stage as I do myself, it's about connection, right? It's about them seeing your face. Like I remember Charlie Baker telling me that it's kind of irrelevant to some extent what's happening below your neck because the audience will read your face and how how it's how it feels and looks to you in the in the moment. Yeah. the thing I have to work on, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's part, and that's part of the reason why this is going to be must-watch TV. But I wanted to go back to the start with you, where I guess you were doing the hip hop dancing, and you said that you were just led to believe that this was not for you, and that this there was no future in this long term, and how how that was expressed to you and how many avenues were expressed to you as being not available what's your first memory of that it wasn't just in there was like a number of things that I automatically thought I couldn't do because I had no role models in it and I, I didn't think it was possible so even like being a waitress seemed impossible to me like I've never I've never been a waitress but I did a culinary degree but even like the thought of oh no one will employ me because I have one hand and I won't be able to do the job as well as somebody else 
and then my mom was a hairdresser when before I was born and like I've always been obsessed with hair and hair products and like I always say like if I had two hands I would have been a hairdresser and it's just that automatic like an automatic stop and be like oh I can't do that because who will employ a hairdresser with one hand? But I, like since cause of social media as well, like I actually have seen hairdressers yes. with one hand. I've seen like waitresses with one hand. But unfortunately, like when I was a kid, social media wasn't around. So when it came to dancing, like I loved it so much and I loved competing and I was swimming alongside it. And like I loved racing and I loved swimming as well. But there was just something about dancing that seemed really like really special to me and it came to the point where I had to choose and I honestly just I was like I I can't see a future in dancing because I there was never any I I was never really told that there's somebody like you out there doing it it wasn't ever anyone saying I couldn't do it it was more me not believing that I could Mm. so I chose the swimming route I'm like I don't have any any regrets about doing that because it's it's gone full circle now and I'm back <laughs> I'm back in the ballroom now not for, not quite hip hop but I'm back dancing and competing and in in dancing and who knows I might only get past the second round but <laughs> um, oh. it, it's so lovely to be able to do that and like I am very aware that I am the first person with a disability going to be on the show and that's why I like I, I'm not I'm not doing it to be a token and I, I know sometimes like I've seen comments from like strictly even of of people with disabilities on the show and people saying oh they're just the token disabled person or they're only going to vote vote the person to stay in because they're disabled and like that's not that's not why I'm doing the show that's not why the show asked me to be on like we've been in talks since before Tokyo like I've wanted to do this for years and they know I have so it, it finally all came together and even like when the when the show got postponed or even cancelled because of COVID, I was like, "Oh my god, my chance is gone!" And then it got announced that it was coming back, and I was like, "Okay, yes, it's fine. I, I can do it now." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's so. It speaks to the change, right? That we have to be living under a stone not to acknowledge the change in dialogue around difference. Like, uh, not just disability, which, again, I know you agree is a really strong word when, you know, a lot of your life's work now is showing people that you can do anything. Mm -hmm. I just think that this discussion around difference and how whatever is unique about you is your strength is something that is so foreign from my childhood and a lot of Irish people's childhood. If somebody you knew was in the position that you were in, it was, Jesus Christ, don't bring it up. Do not mention the arm, whatever you do. Now, you've referenced this before that you just, it wasn't to be talked about. Did you just feel that in the culture or was that something that was in your home? Because your parents just seemed so supportive that I, de- I very much doubt that they were of that mind. No, definitely. They they weren't of that mind at all. And it wasn't like they they were like, don't talk about it, don't reference it. it they, it's, I think it was more like they didn't feel like it needed to be talked about because 
I was quite an, a typical child. I had siblings and we were all treated exactly the same. I think one time I was being bullied, but it wasn't because of my arm. It was just because like, I was a kid and everyone gets bullied. Yeah. Um, but my, I remember my dad's automatic reaction was, "Is did he say anything about your arm? Um, and I was like, no. And then he was like, oh, okay, then. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, when it comes to people now being more open about differences, it still feels like disabilities is the last thing to be thought of. And it still feels like such taboo. And I don't know if it's because like a disability can affect absolutely a, a, anyone in the world. It, anything can happen to you and you can become disabled. And it might be an element of fear that people don't want to support or help or even think about disability and or, and how to become accessible because then it becomes real to them. And it becomes a possibility that it could happen to you or could happen to anyone you love, which is... Ugh, it's awful, but that's honestly how I feel. And I know that's how a lot of people feel that we're, you see all these marches and all these parades for different types of people, but you never see people standing up for disabled people unless it's a disabled person. And sometimes that can come across as we're complaining. We're, we're a bunch of angry complaining people, but we're not. We're literally, we just want equal rights who just want to be treated equally and be able to access buildings and even like for me it's like I I will always identify as disabled because it was a word that I was uncomfortable with it was a word that I avoided it was a group of people that I avoided but I need to be comfortable identifying with it yes. because because other like if I identify with it, hopefully it will give strength to other people who are struggling with it. If they see me achieving or they see me kind of not even just living my life and I acknowledge being disabled, hopefully it will give them a bit more uh, freedom or courage to do the same. But like, I will never say that I know what it feels like not to be able to access a toilet or not to be able to access a building it's, to a certain extent, there are actually times when like I could be in a coffee shop and I've I've just bought a coffee and their accessible door is broken. So it's heavy. So I have to try and figure out how to open this door with a hot coffee in my hand. And nine times out of ten, that coffee will spill all over my hand. <laughs> or it's just little things like that that affect me. But if little things like that can affect me, what are those little things actually doing to people who who need more accessibility like and it's i think it's so crazy isn't it that that essentially what you're arguing for is for a society that's more thoughtful uh, yeah. and that considers those needs yeah. and yet that's that's a struggle like that that getting the access that the, our world spins on to pivot just a tiny bit to make Ooh. that door work or to make sure look let's be honest in the uk specifically i've noticed it so many times they're just not being the access or just it it just being a, a monstrous pain in the hole for them to do mm -hmm. the, the tiniest thing and that said like i feel like britain's connection to returning war heroes 
is is a factor in their attitude towards amputees and people with disabilities that there is a greater awareness of them as athletes as well that the that people compete at this monstrously high level but it does feel like a push does it not do you feel like that push is getting easier or getting harder in Ireland specifically well, even if, like, just even thinking of the UK, though, because I've obviously been to the UK a lot, their attitude to disabled people is completely different. And it's upsetting that I actually enjoy going to the UK because I know if I need help or if I, I'm struggling with something, the person in the shop or in the cafe or whatever is just going to automatically help me without making it a big deal. And it happens all the time, like, Whereas here, it's people people ask if you need help when you don't need help and then watch you struggle and um, when you do need help, which is awful. But in the UK, like I, I know like straight away, they won't even look at my arm. They'll just start packing my bag or they won't like they never even look at my arm. Whereas here, they'll just like look and assume I'm incapable of things, which is I think which that, is uh, not good. yeah, I know, and I can I I hear that because I know that I think I've witnessed that reluctance, and some mm-hmm. of it is a fear of how will the person take this if I'm to help out? Is it are they going to get angry at me? And some of it is they just don't. I think sometimes they just don't think. But I've definitely witnessed what you're describing in the yeah, UK. I- I don't know if it's an education thing. Like in the UK, obviously, they're more exposed to it. And because of the Paralympics in London 2012, they would have been set, like really exposed to mm. it. So they have a whole new kind of respect for, for para-athletes. But the Paralympics and Paralympic athletes is doing a great thing for disabled people. But it's also creating a false a false narrative of what it's like to be a disabled person. Yeah. I think because like I see people with disabilities who don't want to do sport, who want to just live a normal life or who want to do sport as a pastime. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden there's this pressure on them to go to the Paralympics or to be an elite athlete. And they just want to swim. They just <laughs> want to go for a yeah. They <laughs> don't want someone staring at them thinking, oh, I oh, they, if they do all this training, they could go to the games. So we need to find that balance as well of, mm. of the para-athletes are, or Paralympic athletes are like the, the, the elite and normal people are allowed to exist in between. Like you mm. don't have to be either completely incapable or an elite athlete. Like <laughs> yeah. you, you can be mobile. It's so funny <laughs> that it has like to be said. Per- it is so funny that it has to be said, but it's something that I'm sure listeners now are going to be thinking, yeah, that's true. Whenever I see someone, I think must be going to the Paralympics. But no, he's just a guy who likes playing five a side. But a light has to come on. A light light has to go on, though, right? At seven years old, you've said that the, the love got sparked. And from that moment on, the real hard training began when you say the love got sparked or that the light went on was it still even when the hard training had begun was it still just 
I love going fast. I feel free in the water. Or was it right away? I wonder, could I go to the Paralympics? Because I know your dad was was aware of it early doors. Mm, Yeah, I think I just loved competing and I loved racing. And I loved the fact that when when you're when I was like under 12 before like puberty hit and everyone grew muscles and got taller I would have been the same speed as as people my own age which like I could compete against them and and right I could win or I could lose and like there wasn't really much difference until puberty hit and everyone started to grow and then that's really where like I became a bit more unbalanced or I couldn't get as strong as everyone else that quickly. So for me, it was it was just loving being in the water. Swimming is an amazing sport for friendships. I'm still friends today with, with girls that I swam with 20 years ago. And I would be closer to them than I would have been with any school friends or any college friends. And it is because you have to go through awful hard times like what what like 10 year old or 12 year old wants to get up at 20 past four in the morning yeah, um, maybe you should explain that to hours, people like. because <laughs> it, like it is legendary what the swimmers put themselves through and i, I think why. a cousin of mine <laughs> I mean, a cousin of mine went through it for a bit and obviously so many people will have this story of oh my friend tried to be a swimmer and then realized he preferred sleeping Four, four, four o'clock in the morning, getting up for that first session. When that's first put on the table, I mean, you kind of have to know right there and then what your determination level is. Or does it happen over the course of the first month of doing that where you're like, holy moly, is this really doable? I don't really think the thought of what I could do that young and um, really came into my mind when it came to those early morning sessions there's just so much it's so satisfying to to get up that early and and do a training session before anyone's even awake mm-hmm. and even to this day like if you told me I had to get up at four o'clock or five o'clock or get up at seven I choose five because se- seven is so difficult I don't know what it is I can't get up at seven o'clock <laughs> it's either I'll get up at five or six or I'll I'll sleep till like 10 o'clock 11 o'clock like getting up at seven or eight o'clock is torture for me even this morning I was up at six because <laughs> I was like I need to get my shopping done <laughs> <laughs> isn't that crazy though that that there is some difference between those hours and yeah. that but I different definitely I think everyone can relate to feeling one up on the world yeah. When you yeah. get the, the work done early. Uh, and it was kind of because like I had, a, I obviously was aware that I had kind of a talent from a very young age. And when I went away competing and stuff and I was successful or I was getting PBs and I was swimming fast times, like I, I was aware that I was capable of doing something special. And that's what drove me knowing that I was capable of doing something special. But I didn't really know what that special thing was until until I went to the Paralympics in Beijing and I knew I wanted to win a gold medal. But then when I came home, like no matter how hard people try and prepare you for the low after a games, nothing can, can really prepare you because like I was a kid 
Oh, that was my first major international. Um, you were 13 at the time. Yeah, I was 13 at the time. And I couldn't relate to any of my friends anymore. I couldn't relate to the people I swam with anymore either because they were getting excited about the local community gala or or sure. things like that or Leinster's. And I was like, this is pointless. And I struggled for so long with my motivation after Beijing because I didn't know how to get that adrenaline back. Sure, you're Neil Armstrong. You'd been to the moon. <laughs> yeah, but I ha- like I'd been to the moon, but I hadn't. I hadn't won a medal. I hadn't been on the podium. And then for London 2012, like I just was, I wasn't fit enough. I wasn't motivated. I, I, and I had a really awful time, but I think I needed to have that awful time to really motivate me to, to come back stronger and try and get a medal in Rio. And then in Rio itself, like all along, like I had to grow up. I had to come to terms with the fact that I was having having like mental health problems about my arm I was insecure about my arm I was having really bad anxiety and you can't just switch that off when it comes to racing you can't go from like for 20 hours a day being like I am unworthy I don't deserve love my my body isn't right my body isn't normal and then stand up and race and tell yourself I believe in myself I'm great I can do this like it's impossible to do that and I literally had to go on such a journey to even to even win that medal in Rio but then after Rio like it was I want to win a gold medal and how am I going to do this and it was only really between Rio and Tokyo that I really started to believe that I could do that. Well Ellen I'd love to dig in a little bit deeper into some of what you said there about the journey and like you you hit on an awful lot there that we see reflected in so many sporting journeys you can't have a duality of person they're really the the wholeness of the one that wins is ultimately at peace the person who's most at peace with themselves will win it's so strange that you see that time and time again but that's literally what you've described that struggle yeah that's exactly what happened like that's why like when when i did win my gold medal and I like I've been told so many times like my teammates were so disappointed that I didn't get on the lane rope and celebrate and throw water everywhere and smash (laughs) the water and be ridiculous and have loads of photo opportunities like if I win a gold medal again I know I know to fake it so that I can get those photo ops (laughs) (laughs) I can get cool photos taken but when like when it happened like I was just so relaxed so at ease so the last thing I said to myself before I walked out was no matter what happens I love you and I never felt that calm or that like just at one with myself and and like completely like it didn't matter if I won or lost I just wanted to make myself proud and that's why like the time was more important to me like it's amazing that I was able to win the gold medal 100% yes but to know that I could swim that fast was what I wanted what can you say about Ellen Keane well I can tell you there's another 30 minutes of this conversation maybe a little bit more over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad just a joy to talk to and so much more that we get into including just the 
realities of competing at the Olympics and the stuff that she didn't expect and the stuff that she didn't expect afterwards, the come down from these games. It seems like the better you do, the harder it is to come back and come back to reality. I was shocked to hear some of the stuff that she had to say towards the end about how other athletes treated her when she came home. Uh, you'll want to hear this. It's over on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. Uh, supporters of our show get access to the full back catalogue of Irishman episodes. That's eight years of conversations with the greatest Irish people ever to have lived, as well as everything that we're going to produce in the future in its full form. So a new interview comes out each Sunday and you can get the full uncut version of it each Sunday. You also get the bonus episodes each week. Sonia Sullivan and I talk running on a Tuesday and on a Friday we get Marion McKeown, Irishman in America. You get that as well. Those are exclusive episodes for patrons only. Patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. Happy Christmas to you wherever you are in the world. I'm so glad that I could be your accompaniment for some of this crazy year. We've no plans of stopping, but like I said, we can't do it without your support. This is a crowdfunded podcast. It is not here without you. So please consider it this Christmas. If you've got an extra fiver in the month, come over and support us. And I'd be massively grateful. Brian Connolly is on sound. Tina and Mikey make it all possible. John Maher provides extra research. And you guys are the lifeblood of the show and the reason that I keep doing it. I will talk to you on Tuesday with Sonia because Irishman Abroad literally never stops. Next Sunday, we'll be back with our 2021 awards for the year. Don't miss that episode. I'll talk to you then.